Another rebound in a crowd by the Brock Ness Monster. Ooh, that would be Pedro. Ooh. Jim Bob Foley, holy moly. How about the Tasmanian Slovenian with the stop, drop, and pop? Tiffany Hop with the King's Herald Barbershop. You're listening to the King's Herald Show, a bi-weekly NBA podcast that covers all the ups and downs, ins and outs of your one and only Sacramento Kings. As always, I'm your host, Will Griffith, and with me today, writer for the King's Herald, my co-host, Tony Zipteris. Tony, how's it going? It's going great, Will. We've got a list of coaches, which is exciting. So <laughs> let's let's start talking about it. We, uh, we're bringing in an expert here to make sure that, uh, that we get through those, uh, those coaches with some accuracy and with some, uh, with some pizzazz. So our guest for today, she's the host of the Incredible Sports Ethos Sacramento Kings podcast, an absolute staple on Kings Twitter. And the only podcaster brave enough to allow me to rant about gold jerseys on their time. That's Jill Adds. Jill, it's wonderful to have you on today. Thank you. I'm sorry our dark horse was not was not <laughs> mentioned in the top yet. seven. Not mentioned that's, yet. No, that's true. Yet. <laughs> there, there's, his team's still out there, so there's still a possibility. But We've got time. We've yeah. got time. He's a former Sacramento Kings head coach, GM, and color analyst, general manager of a WNBA champion, Indiana Basketball Hall of Famer, and the true pride of French Lick himself, Jerry Reynolds. Jerry, as always, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here today. How's it going? Well, it's a real pleasure to be with you guys, and obviously uh, looking forward to uh, discussing this coaching thing, and uh, certainly with Jill. I've really uh, appreciated her work over the years. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, Well, let's jump right into it. It sounds like the Kings have narrowed their current list of coaching candidates to seven. Adrian Wojnarowski uh, reported last Friday that Sacramento had secured permission to interview Golden State assistant Mike Brown, Brooklyn consultant uh, Steve Clifford, Milwaukee's Darvin Ham and Charles Lee, and Boston's Will Hardy. Shams then dropped uh, two interesting inclusions into the mix. Uh, Pelicans coaching advisor, uh, Mike D'Antoni, and uh, former Warriors coach and current broadcaster, Mark Jackson. So we'll get to each of the candidates in time, but to start, just looking at this list from a mile above, what are your general impressions of the group that the Kings have gathered? And uh, were there any surprise additions or people left off of the list for you guys? Well, I mean, I'm certainly a little surprised that Kenny Atkinson wasn't on the list and, and I would have thought probably a couple of veterans more would have been listed just just my thoughts I mean I I thought probably Terry Stotts and and maybe Scotty Brooks uh would 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 certainly be on the list and I, I honestly think they should yeah absolutely Tony Joe what about you guys is there anything uh, that you guys uh, took away from the uh from the general impressions of this uh, group that the Kings have gathered um, I agree with Jerry on the the sense that I was surprised that in the first tweet we got about it, Kenny and Stotts, I believe, were both mentioned. Um, I don't know if I think maybe one might have been a Woj and one might have been a Shams, but they were both out there. Um, so it made me wonder uh, of did they contact them and maybe there was no wasn't reciprocal interest. Um, but I was also kind of surprised at some of the other uh newbies uh like adrian griffin and sam cassell who have been out there as well in a lot of the openings the last couple of years um those are two that i was a little bit more surprised that that might have been on there but that could have been the same kind of thing as maybe you know they weren't interested either but that is one that we've been seeing for almost every opening is those two guys so i was kind of surprised that they weren't out there yeah i'll take a different approach to 
I guess, feedback on the list and just say, I'm pretty happy with it. Um, in the, in the Vlade Divac years, there were some, some rough head coaching lists. If we even got a list at all, you know, sometimes we just hired Luke Walton without interviewing anyone else. Um, so the, the initial list, I, I, I like quite a bit. There's some names on it. I like more than others, but, uh, and despite the fact that my number one pick and has been for over a year now, Kenny Atkinson is not on it. There's still some, some good, or at least we would like to think good head coaches on this list. We don't know for sure. A lot of these guys are sort of uh, lean unproven, but um, if you're going to go in that direction with a, a more young unproven assistant uh, coach in other organizations, I like the names that, that the Kings are going to talk to. And they're from that tree, his tree, right. To that, that he came from. So you could even say that Darvin ham hasn't been given the opportunity that Kenny has already, but he's been around for, you know, almost as long as a player and as an assistant at this point. So there are some similarities, I think, like you mentioned that um, it's a good, it's a good list. Like there's based on your, your vets. And then you have kind of your, your newbies that again, the three that um, that we've mentioned, they're all names that have been interviewing for almost every opening out there as well. So it's to me, there weren't any totally off the wall names just based on who we've been seeing interview year after year. I mean, Mike D'Antoni was, you know, one of the three finalists for Portland last year. So, um, you know, his name is still out there, even though, um, he is, you know, people are still wondering if he'll get back in it or not, but his name has still been out there as recently as last off season. So Tony, Tony mentioned this, but I, I guess, I guess me being the cynic that I am, I'm a little bit surprised that there aren't a couple more like agent favor names out there. Like I was a little bit surprised that like we talked about this a little bit uh, amongst ourselves at the Kings Herald, but like I'm surprised there isn't like a, like in previous years there was like a Vinny Del Negro that that always seemed to pop up or like a Henry Bibby that's like they're they're coaches yeah yeah they they certainly were professional coaches at some point but like to get their name on the list it was kind of like a hey we'll you know we'll we'll give you a little bit less on the contract if you uh, if you just mention a couple of my a couple of my coaches here in, in your coaching search. Jerry, I wanted to ask you specifically about Kenny Atkinson, only because the Kings did apparently, according to James Ham, do their due diligence with him and went forward without him. Do you feel like this was more of a case, Jerry, just using your coaching, you know, spider senses here? Do you feel like this is more a case of the Kings not being interested in Kenny Atkinson or Kenny Atkinson holding off, waiting on the Lakers and the Hornets and some other teams that might be firing the coaches and not really being interested in the Kings? Well, that's a great question. I really wouldn't have any insight there or even thoughts. I mean, I, I do think that if uh, it's pretty difficult to ask the Warriors to permission to talk to two of their guys. I mean, at some point, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure they'd have given permission. It could be disruptive to this year's team at this year's time. And so I know if I were running the Warriors, I wouldn't. I'd say, what the hell? We, you know, <laughs> we, we've got things to co concentrate on here. So I, I, I think that might be as simple as that. Sure. Now, what about what about where uh, Milwaukee uh, allowed uh, both of their candidates, uh, you know, two two assistants there? Is it just a matter of personal preference that some teams are are okay with it, or maybe the assistants are a little less important to to the game plan, or or is this a, just a matter of a team by team basis and and their personalities uh, allowing that or not allowing that? Well, I think that's exactly what it is. I think uh, some coaches uh, certainly view it differently uh you know i can't you know you'd have to talk to each one and i think probably when it comes down to allowing longtime assistant coaches uh to get a chance that's one thing as opposed to guys who have been head coaches several times over 
to get opportunities, you know, in other words. So I, I think that might in, enter into it as well. Or I think it would in my case, if, if I had guys that were working on my staff and had never had a head coaching job and, and uh, had done a great job, you know, it's, it's not like uh, they're going to get a lot of opportunities. You don't know when those are going to come as opposed to former head coaches. Okay, so I want to kind of go through this list a little bit here and talk about each of them. It's one of the reasons we brought Jill on today because, because she's well-researched in all these people. And, and, and uh, Tony, you can jump in whenever you want to. And Jerry, obviously, you're more well-researched on all this than any of us because you've been there and you've sat in the spot. So um, I wanted to run through kind of on previous head coaches and then some of the newbies just to kind of get our opinions on each of them or anything that you might want to touch on with each of them. Uh, so I'll list the first four that have been head coaches before, and that would be Golden State Warriors assistant Mike Brown, Brooklyn uh, consultant Steve Clifford. Uh, it's weird calling him Pelicans coaching advisor Mike D'Antoni because it's Mike D'Antoni, <laughs> inventor of the seven seconds or less offense yeah. and, and, and successful in every place that he's been pretty much uh, outside of Los Angeles. So Mike D'Antoni and uh, current broadcaster Mark Jackson, who uh, coached in Golden State for, uh, for three years. So out of those four, do, do, you, do you guys want to start? Uh, Jill, do you want to start uh, anywhere in particular? And we can kind of jump from there or, or we just want to go right down the list and, uh, and you can give your feelings on each one of them. You can go with who you listed first and Mike Brown. Sure. Okay. Go ahead. As I mentioned in my podcast, I kind of look at him as like the league traveler. So he's 54, but he started in the league at 22 as a video coordinator with the Nuggets. So he has spent more than half his half of his life, like in an organization on a bench around um, around a team. And I think that's something that's kind of forgotten. And when you talk about Mike Brown, it's most people just think of his, um, Cleveland days or his short stint, um, with the Lakers. And then only getting that one year back with that dysfunctional Cleveland team again. Um, but he's another guy that comes from the pop tree. He's, uh, one rings as both an assistant and as, um, as an assistant, um, in just with the warrior. Oh no, at two places. So with the Spurs and with the Warriors, um, he's again, grown organically from a video coordinator to your assistant, to your associate assistant, um, under pop under Rick Carlisle. Um, now you have Steve Kerr. I mean, it's when you, if you took away his name and you just gave, I think his accolades, I think people might have a different perception of him. Um, that just is kind of me. Uh, I'm interested in seeing what he could do with the team. Obviously, that's not LeBron. I know when he went back to the um, to Cleveland for his second stint, he got nine more wins out of that team than they had the year before. Their defense jumped to almost the top half of uh, half average of the league. In the 18 years he's been in charge of defenses, he has only had two uh, two seasons of below average defense. The Kings haven't had <laughs> um, average defense or better in the 16 years that you know that we're in our slump right now. And so, I can see why he's being interviewed. I know he might not be the flashy name of a retread that people you know think of, but. He's good at what he does. And I, this, this, I'm just going to read a quick little blurb that Draymond Green gave 
recently about him is it says the Warriors analytics staff put together a defensive metric for each player. It's a muddled formula that takes into account performance and isolation settings, how well you hold your assignment above or below his normal shooting average and some other defensive factors. Spitting out a number for every player that can be improved or hurt depending on their performance. Brown makes everybody's number public. The entire team knows who's doing well, who isn't, who's improving, who's slipping. He's direct. He'll call you out in the film, and it's backed by his boisterous on-court leader. Draymond says, Mike Green challenged everyone. He has this little metric sheet guys are on. He's challenging guys every day. Every game, there's a defensive play of the game, defensive play of the week, and a player of the month. All these things. He's making it fun and competitive. It's incredible. The Warriors happen to finish as a top two defense this year. Again, yes, they're talented, but I thought that was a really cool little way that he's holding people accountable, right? Like the team as a whole, you're putting everybody's numbers up as a team, you know, who's bringing it, who's not, who's slipping. Do you know what I mean? And so I think something like that with the Kings, it seems like that's kind of been lacking for a long time. We always talk about the accountability of it and, um, I will sit you if you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And so I, I really enjoyed that, um, that piece on it. And so the only thing I would probably say is his offense has never really been spectacular. And that's where with him, you would be looking at getting a good offensive coordinator because he isn't a Jack of all trades type. It's he's very much defensive oriented. So you would need someone offensively to help, um, fill in those gaps yeah absolutely jerry i'm curious as to what your thoughts are on mike brown where he has traveled a bit he has benefited from having one of the greatest players of all time on his team for a good long while uh he has been an assistant now for what another six or seven seasons after that so i'm curious where you where you land on somebody like mike brown where he's just kind of a he's there he's not the he's not the most exciting candidate but he's not certainly the worst candidate either oh no not at all i i mean i i think when you think of Mike Brown, I think you probably think of a guy sometimes maybe that got his first head coaching job, maybe before he was quite ready. Uh, and, 35. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, and so I, I, I don't think, I mean, it's no different than a Jason Kidd or somebody. I mean, I think sometimes uh, uh, that works against you. And in his case, I think it has, but I think he's more than made up for it with, with time. Uh, I think he's obviously a good candidate. I mean, it's like everything Jill said. The only thing I would disagree with you a little bit on Jill, uh, he's not holding them accountable. Don't kid yourself. Steve Kerr is holding them accountable. Okay, uh, good trail, so, trail, trail. <laughs> so, so uh, that that's uh, that's always the deal. It's like uh, you can hire all the defensive coordinators you want till the cows come home, but if the head coach don't don't don't, uh, he's Very the one true. that Very puts true. them in and takes them out. So, uh, but uh, no, I, I I'd, I'd have to say you know I, I think Mike got a, a kind of a raw deal in a couple of spots. You know, expectations were higher than they should have been, and uh, you know at some point, uh, you know to, to me he's he's more than qualified uh, to be a top candidate here. Yeah, Joe, I, th- I think you said something interesting there where you said if you took away his name, how excited would people be? And this is a guy that was a coach of the year. It was you know twelve years ago, but. If, if you'd have told me his list of accolades, I'd have been like, oh, okay, this is an interesting pick. When I heard it was Mike Brown, I kind of went, oh, okay. You know, but you're absolutely right that it changes based on what you know about the guy. And, and he certainly on paper looks like a decent pick. Yeah. And 
I know something that people are always worried about, depending on if you're the, you know, quote unquote retread or the newbie, what kind of staff you could put together. And he has a history of putting together some good staffs. I mean, he had uh, Mike Malone on his staff in Cleveland Uh, when he was with the Lakers. He had uh, Dan D'Antoni, Mike's brother. He had Quinn Snyder. He had Darvin Ham. He had Steve Clifford. That that was a whole group of the, the 12, 13 Lakers. And so that's something too, where I think I'd have a trust there of, could he put a well-rounded staff and he knows how to fill in those gaps of what he might be missing with, um, you know, who can do that. So. Well, I'm glad we have Jill and Jerry on the podcast so I can kind of play like dismissive asshole about some of these guys and keep it short (laughs) and just say that like, if Mike Brown is the, is the name that, that comes out of this search, I'll be, I mean, just being honest, I'll be a little disappointed. Not that I can say, I know he'll do a bad job. I don't know that I, for sure. For sure. He could be a, a great head coach. I don't know, but the Kings have so much riding on this run. And we could say that any year that um, I've seen too much of Mike Brown, not, not, I don't even want to say not doing well, because it's not all the coach's fault when a team doesn't go well, but there's been too many uh, L's, I guess, in his category to me, where it's like, there's other names on this list I would prefer over him. That's not to say that if he's the guy, he won't do great, but uh, just keeping it shorter on my end, that's kind of how I feel about Mike Brown. Not a, not a super inspiring name to me that sticks out among the other, other names here. Okay, well, let's roll over to uh, the to uh, uh, Brooklyn consultant, former Charlotte Hornets head coach uh, Steve Clifford. There, Joe. He's the defensive savant in league circles. Uh, as one Ringer article said, franchises can do much worse than a coach who has a reputation on building strong bonds with his players and can make even the most lackluster rosters in the NBA competent defensively. Is that like a not a perfect description of the Kings, honestly, the last couple of years? Like, I mean, he he started under Jeff Van Gundy in the NBA and so and was on a bench with um, Tibbs, uh, Patrick Ewing. Uh, then he joined Stan Van Gundy's bench in Orlando and they made it to the finals. Then he was on Mike Brown's bench uh, in L.A., when he was given his first head coaching opportunity with then the Charlotte Bobcats, uh, they became a top five defensive team. Uh, the first year he took over, which they were at the bottom uh, in the NBA uh, the previous season. And um, he led them to a 43-39 record and finished fourth in head coach of the year voting. The two years prior to him joining the Bobcats, they had won a total of 28 wins. So just in that one season, he almost single-handedly doubled their, their win total. Um, something I did like that he mentioned in a recent podcast he was on was, this is something I think a lot of Kings fans would agree with, that in order to win in the league, you need some good perimeter defenders. Hmm. Uh, too many guys can't stay in front of someone for one dribble. I think we heard Luke Walton say that one too. Um, don't foul, stay straight up vertically. Don't slap down, be disciplined. He says you can't be down six threes a game to a team, but if you're getting killed on the glass at the rim, then it'll be just as hard to win in the league. You don't have to have big rim presence. Um, they were saying, if you don't have the big rim presence, what can you do? Some say that's, you know, could be the case here. He says, watch OKC, they're ninth in defense, they're disciplined. They don't have the big shot blocker, but they're early to react. 
the early to help. He says, I think so much of it is not getting spread out off the ball as the ball moves. The things we always talk about, everybody move as one, be connected, trust each other. If you watch some of the best defenses right now, it's the old school stuff, squaring the ball up. You don't get crushed. They help better. They don't overhelp. They aren't just running around where you're letting good players uh, get behind you. I'm okay with trying things and adapting, but to me, the good teams are saying it's not okay to be blown by on the first dribble. Get square when you close out. Don't slap the ball. If the guy gets by you, show your hands. The fundamental areas of playing good team defense. So I think we all can agree with that. Something that I thought was noticeable is when um, five of his eight squads had a top 10 defense, despite lacking the true rim protector, um, uh, such as Al Jefferson, Cody Zeller, and then even uh, Vucevic. And in the 6,000 plus minutes, Vucevic was on the floor with the Magic over the three seasons under Clifford, only 29% of their opponent shots came at the rim. So that showed me that his defense was good at, or at least those guys were listening and doing, you know, his defensive schemes of keeping the ball out and, you know, not as much was, was at the rim. And that's something the Kings have, you know, failed to do time and time again. So I think you do have to have players that can do that and are also coachable in doing that. Um, they called his, his defensive players gnats because they were just all over you out there. So again, um, he has shown that he can do it on defense, not so much on the offense. And so, but again, I still think you need the players same with Brown to be able to implement what these guys are, you know, to buy in what these guys are asking for on uh, the defensive side. But I would say the first two names definitely are the more defense oriented um, candidates. Jerry, what do you think about uh, about hiring somebody like a Steve Clifford, who is much more of a savant on one end or much more focused on one end of the court where the Kings are? We know the Kings can score. How much is that affected by hiring a guy that n- not necessarily abandons the offense, but like obviously focuses squarely on the defensive side of the ball? Well, I, I do think he's probably uh, the least risk as far as uh, hiring someone to make your defense better. I mean, uh, uh, he's done it, you know, he's been the, and he's been a head coach of, of uh, playoff teams and uh, that weren't playoff teams before he got there. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit of Tom Thibodeau where it, it runs its course, but if you're a Kings fan, who cares as long as there's a course, uh, you know, <laughs> you worry about running it later. Uh, but uh, I, yeah, the only, the only just, brief thought I'd have on, on Steve is I've watched, I mean, I think he's, I think he's really a good solid NBA coach uh, is that part of the reason I think that, that the defense, one of the reasons it helped their defense, he also played pretty slow on offense. And so, uh, you know, less possessions. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's uh, sometimes that can be a little bit of a fooler, uh, but I, I, I don't, I was never really impressed with his offense. Uh, particularly but but I do I mean I think he's a he would come in if he were you to be your coach you would see a legitimate improvement on the defensive end and uh, you know obviously the the offense probably take care of itself if you actually got a couple more players that could score uh, consistently but uh, yeah I you know I, I think it'd be a lot of fans that say oh gee who has a retread well yeah well Rick Adelman was a retread how'd that work out uh, you know, at some point, uh, it's more important to get the right guy than decide you 
you have to have, you know, somebody that's never done it uh, over somebody that, that has. But uh, I, I, I think he's, you know, I, I, I would be one of those guys that say, I'll be surprised if they hired uh, Steve Clifford, that they wouldn't improve by five games. Well, that's good. We're getting uh, we're getting towards a ten seed then if we win five more games. Well, I, I, I don't, I'm sorry. I, I I know you want I know you want you want Red Auerbach to come out of the grave, but uh, it ain't he ain't walking through that door, partner. Yeah. <laughs> but I think for the principles that people liked Kenny Atkinson and right of improving a team, Clifford has shown that in the two stops that you know that he's landed, and so in those regards that's kind of been his, his profile is taking these bad teams and they're not turning into super superstars, but they're relevant. And so, you know, that's more than we can say than what we've had here. So. One of those things that I like about Clifford at least is that uh, I, I was watching interviews with a uh, Kemba Walker who, who uh, was coached by, by, by Clifford, his first, you know, four years in the league or whatever. And, or, and maybe it's a little bit more than that, yeah. but like, like Kemba, Kemba, believes in him Kemba likes him Kemba has has attributed uh, uh a lot of his success especially on the shooting into the floor with Clifford like going out and hiring a shooting coach or Clifford like being able to correct certain things about his shot and it's one of those things that like I look at De'Aaron Fox and I go yeah De'Aaron Fox is what he is but I also see Davion Mitchell where it's like if they decided De'Aaron Fox is a little too pricey for what he gives Davion Mitchell could be a Kemba Walker type that uh, that they could continue on with and like I kind of go like uh, I can kind of see where Steve, Steve Clifford would like to have Davion Mitchell as as the tip of the spear on the defensive end rather mm-hmm. than a Darren Fox but that he's able to coach point guards and point guards of a high caliber appreciate him and, and like him as a coach too yeah just remember this and, and I'll remind you if, if you don't I mean uh, Kimball could not shoot the ball as well as Davion Mitchell could as a rookie I can tell you right friggin now okay but I'll tell you something else uh, the guy that made Kimba Walker a shooter, a guy named Mark Price. Yeah. That's who. Uh, that's who Steve Clifford hired. And I'll tell you any any. I'd tell anybody anybody in the NBA if they want a shooting coach, he's the very best there is. You can't get better than that. Damn guy should be in the Hall of Fame. By the way, that's another story. <laughs> but but anyway, but anyway, I mean, I I guarantee you, he'd he'd make strides uh, with with this franchise shooting wise. Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was interesting Kemba Kemba was saying that he was just kind of getting by that he wasn't he wasn't trying to make waves he wasn't he just wanted to kind of get himself going into the waves his first couple of years and it was Clifford that came up to him and said you can be an all-star like we're going to do this you can be an all-star trust me and like he said he did and it was the best thing that ever happened to him. Yeah, I think Clifford maybe represents the safest option among all the people on this list. Just I'm fairly confident if you hire Steve Clifford, you've got a, a pretty solid coach there. Maybe not the highest upside. And, and I'm more of an, I guess, an aggressive uh, basketball observer where it's like, I, I'm, I want the upside. I want the all of that, which maybe Clifford won't be the the best, the highest upside coach in the list, but he's certainly not like the bottom of it either. He's somewhere in the middle and it's a, it would be a pretty safe hire to me where you, like Jerry said, I feel pretty comfortable saying this guy is going to come in here and add some wins. I don't know how many, but he's going to add some wins and he's, you're not going to get worse with, with Steve Clifford for sure. Okay. So I want to run from uh, we've had two guys that are known for their defense to a guy who's a Dr. Frankenstein on the offensive end. Uh, Jill, why don't, uh, do you have anything for Mike D'Antoni today? I mean, just that he's his career, he's an over 500 coach, right? So 
that that in his own right. Um, He, for the most part, has succeeded wherever he's gone and might be in small increments based on what I mean by that is just only a couple years and then he's gone because he actually hasn't lasted and an org longer than he did with Phoenix that first time. Every, every other stop has been kind of like three to four years. Um, but there were, you know, there were stars in that. And so that's where um, I, I would kind of, where people had the Mike Brown questions on, can he do this with a, you know, not star studded type roster and with a big like Sabonis, um, I, I'm just not, I'm not sure. I've always enjoyed his offenses, but. <laughs> I, I think D'Antoni's reputation kind of speaks for himself in a way that, you know, we need a brush up on Mike Brown and Steve Clifford, but I don't know how many people, even casual observers of the NBA need a brush up on somebody like uh, Mike D'Antoni, where you can just say, oh yeah, uh, the Steve Nash sons or, you know, oh, okay. The, that Knicks, that Knicks run probably wasn't the best, but like, oh, the Knicks with Amari or like, oh, Houston, uh, and, and James Harden, like Dan Tony has a reputation and, and, and uh, I'm curious, Jerry, I'm going to ask you about this, what your, what your thoughts are on, on Mike Dan Tony and to hell with defense. We're just going to slam on the pedal. We're going to go offense 150 points a game from everybody. We're going to give up 160, but, but damn it, it'll be fun. Well, uh, it wouldn't be fun. hundred, you give up 160 and score 150. I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, Will. Uh, I, I can guarantee. That's all okay. my thoughts on that. That's the King's but, thoughts uh, on that. Yeah. Well, of course with, with Mike D'Antoni, I, 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 I'm so old. I, I remember him as a player. This is what scary kids. Uh, I, I always say I was, I was a college division coach with, he was with the Kansas city Kings and the, uh, and I, I was, you know, kind of Phil Johnson was the, the coach at that time. And uh, I, I helped him out a little bit summers and veteran cast. But anyway, uh, I always remember him asking, you know, it came down to the last cut. It was between Mike D'Antoni and Rick Adelman. And uh, I always remember he asked my thoughts on because he knew I watched every practice and it helped out a little bit. And I said, you know, I, I'd keep Rick Adelman. I, I said, I think he's a tougher guy. Uh, and he kept Mike D'Antoni and, and it didn't end well. You know, of course, it ended well for Mike <laughs> because he went over to, to Italy and was an all time great, you know, became actually Kobe's hero there while he was growing up uh, with his dad. But uh, yeah. to get to his coaching, uh, I, I've, I've always, uh, what a delightful person he is. Uh, like Paul Westfall, just you can't help but like him unless you're just a prick. Uh, which cousin was, of course, but that's a, that's another that's another story. But but uh, I, I just don't think he's the right fit. I, I mean, I really think it, when you get to be seventy years old or older. I mean, uh, I, I I've been here with you know coaches that kind of came to retire, Dick Mata and and George Carl, and I mean it, it's a it's a it's it's a lot of energy. You need a lot of energy to coach in the NBA and. And, and I don't believe that Mike really has that anymore. And, and I, I, I really believe he probably knows that. But so in my mind, is it's just a non-starter, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing is that, you know, we're looking for somebody who could be here for, you know, six, eight years who could go on a good run. And, you know, you hear people kind of speculate, oh, when Greg Popovich is going to retire. And D'Antoni's only like a year and a half younger than him. So I, I, I kind of wonder if maybe, but maybe, Hey, maybe pops. Yeah. Up. Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, I mean, I, I, I love the guy. He's an all time great, but really there's no, I don't know what he really uh, with this are the Spurs better off him staying, you know, into the 
riding off in the sun or are they, you know, would they be better to kind of move a different direction here? He's running up the score. That's what that is, Jerry. He's running up the score. No, I know. And that's what I say. (laughs) I mean, I've seen that with Don Nelson and some other guys, you know, guys probably were were coaching for the wrong reasons at a point. And uh, I I just think probably going along with what maybe some of you are thinking, I think that's the last thing the Kings need is somebody that isn't really married to the damn job. Yeah and has the energy for it and can uh, can do do what's called for i'm, I'm only a little bit curious about uh only because we saw this with the gm search where the kings brought in somebody like a wes wilcox for the head job and they brought in monty mcnair for the head job and then they kind of married the two and that they hired both of them i often uh you know since this since this thing has come out i'd i'd kind of wondered if maybe they had their heart set on maybe a steve clifford and then bringing in a mike d'antoni for a couple of years as an assistant just so that like, oh, you've got the, they're, they're trying to marry the offense with the defense on that one. And I'm curious, Jerry, if you'd, if you'd even see him as a candidate for a, a, an assistance position at this, at this time. Well, I, I think he could do that. I mean, I think probably, uh, you know, kind of more along the line of a consultant like he is with the Pelicans might be the better role, uh, to be honest. But yes, I think he might could add something. And uh, certainly I'll tell you this, I mean, his ego is not the kind of thing you'd worry about. Like there's some long-term head coaches that you, you know, i.e. Larry Brown or somebody <laughs> that you, you, you'd, you'd want to make sure you had a protection on your back uh, from, 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 from George Carl, not knife wounds or something. But, uh, but no, he's, uh, he's high caliber. He, I mean, so on, yeah, on some basis, I don't think you'd ever worry about having a Mike D'Antoni as part of your staff or consultant or something. I think he'd find a way to be valuable. Mike D'Antoni, I think Jerry nailed it um, with like the concerns about having him. Where I fall in as like a, a fan of this team, when they brought in George Carl, I had my reservations about hiring him for the same reasons Jerry mentioned about, you know, why you might not want to hire Mike D'Antoni. But at the end of the day, I was like, well, you know, the Kings brought in a Hall of Fame caliber coach and they paid a lot of money for him. So on some level, I'm thankful that they're spending on this position and they're bringing in someone who's done it before. And that's kind of how I feel about Mike D'Antoni, where would he be my first choice for the reasons that we listed? Not really, but there is a part of me that it, that would get kind of excited or, or, or I guess respect the Kings a little bit where it's like, Hey, they went out and they got this guy who's done it a bunch of different places. Um, and he's not going to be cheap. So on those levels, it's, it's something that I want this team to do, which is go for it, get, you know, get, bring play, people into the organization of that caliber. Uh, it is unfortunate that he, it might, you know, he might not have the energy to do it at the level the Kings would need him to do it. So he's a conflicting hire to me because he is such a, I mean, he's a hall of fame coach and for, you know, we've been complaining about so many things in this organization for so long that it's like, Oh, you guys brought Mike D'Antoni and hopefully it's for the right reasons, but I kind of respect that you, you went for something like that. Joe, what about you? Are you, uh, what side are you on with this whole uh, Mike D'Antoni thing? The same, the same way I view for him and Clifford, it seems like the coaching consultants is like the, would be a dream job for them right now. Like Clifford said that he only has to um, fly in to like Brooklyn uh, twice a month, like, and they go over film, like he goes over film with Nash and kind of talks about what he sees, but he's able to stay at his home in Orlando. Like, so he's not, you know, and he's had some health problems, so you're not being required to travel all the time or, you know, the, you're not dealing with the drama or the necessary, you know, the pressures that, that you would have for this. And so I just don't see him being here for long. And that's something I want to see in this, 
with this hire is I want to see something that can last. And that is my big worry with him. His, he's a two-time coach of the year, like award winner. He, his resume speaks for itself, but that's really the biggest thing for me is I just don't see it being a long-term necessary fit. I know he works well with Monty based on, you know, how they talk about their time in Houston. And Monty was always talked about as the guy that was able to have those um, analytic conversations, you know, with, with the coaching staff over there and work with them based on rosters and rotations, things like that. And so I think there would probably be a pretty seamless, you know, transition for the two of them coming here, but it still seems like it would be a short-sighted move rather than a, um, a long-term like grow with the team kind of higher. Jill, I, I, I would agree too, Jill. I, I think this consultant thing, you know, I know, uh, of course, uh, uh, Larry Riley, uh, former GM of Golden State's a consultant with uh, Atlanta and, and always, of course, Larry Bird for a long time with Indiana. And I always remember this, the great story, though, was Dell Harris was a consultant for Mark Cuban in Dallas. And I always, I always used to ask Dell, I said, well, now you're a consultant. Uh, uh, how, often do you, how often do you have to give advice to Mark? He said, well, I've been with him three years and he hadn't called me yet. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I've always thought, man, that's kind of gig to get right there. Yep. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're even seeing Terry Stotts is doing it uh, the last couple months with the jazz mm -hmm. and Quinn Snyder. Yeah. So, I mean, depending on what happens there, maybe that's a, a way for, for him to get into that spot too, but you seem to be hearing it more and more and especially um, from these young guys. So even if you could get them, if you could steal them from the Pelicans to be a, if you were to hire one of the younger guys we're going to talk about and have him be a, a consultant just of someone to bounce ideas off of. I think that would be a steal. Yeah. I think that's something that once Luke Walton got fired, I, I, I wrote in a couple of mailbags that like, as much as I like Mike D'Antoni, I want the guy Mike D'Antoni thinks is the next Mike D'Antoni. Like I want the next Frankenstein, not the one that we currently have. That's kind of aging himself out of the league, which could be Adelman's kid. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. David Adelman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, David. Yeah, David. Sharp. He's running that offense sharp. offense with the Nuggets. So, yeah. He is, I guarantee you, he's a sharp guy. And uh, uh, his time should be coming. We're going we're gonna to go to our last uh, of the, of the. Uh, it feels mean to call them retreads because I feel like they're a little, they deserve a little bit more respect than that. But former head coaches currently looking to be a current head coach. Uh, and uh, that's a, that's broadcaster Mark Jackson. Uh, who coached in Golden State uh, for three years. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to stay out of the weeds with this one only because there is a lot of like off the court stuff with, with Mark Jackson. Uh, lots of, lots of weird rumor mongering and lots of strange uh, happenstance in his time in Golden State and a million different reasons why when he got fired, nobody was kind of sad to see him go in Golden State. Um, Jill, do you have anything for, for Mark or do you want me to go right to Jerry on this one? So my little blurb that you'll see on the website that you guys have, I think it already came out today, but I view him as the wild card. Um, he's known for a 17 year NBA career and building the foundation of the Warriors. While he's had many successes, it's also come with a lot of turbulence behind the scenes. Um, I think he's one where if people don't care about the behind the scenes stuff um, and they like what he did, you know, with the three years he with the Warriors, then they'll have no issues with them. But I think if, you know, 
you do care about some of the behind the scenes stuff, especially coming into an organization like the Kings, which is full of behind the scenes stuff that gives me extreme pause. Um, <laughs> just in general. And it could be anyone with any kind of behind the scenes stuff that would give me pause coming to an organization like this. Absolutely. He feels like the most uh, Kingsy of all the Kings picks uh, on that seven li- uh, on the list of seven coaches that they've uh, that they're looking into. He feels very much like the one that's the most already Kings version of everything. You know, he seems like the most turbulent of everyone. Uh, he comes with a lot of off the court baggage. Jerry, do you have any thoughts on on uh, Mark Jackson at all? Well, it, it would be good to get him off TV. We're going to take the hit for that. <laughs> I don't know. We ought to go to that extreme here, but uh, I think it's a I think it's a worthy goal. But uh, oh, I the the you know the thing that's always struck me with Mark, and I, I got to know him a little bit uh, while he was. Uh, broadcasting for the at that time new jersey nets and uh the thing that always came to mind and of course i knew him as a player a little bit was just a totally arrogant guy i mean not just a little bit (laughs) you know i mean he really uh you know but the other side of it was i don't that most of his players uh well his coastal warriors like playing for him yeah and so you know that's you know that can't just be dismissed you know, that they, they like playing for him and, and, uh, you know, basically would support him, would always support him. So I always thought that was intriguing. I I think, and I think that's his strength and his weakness. He's good with players and not very good with uh, people who aren't players. (laughs) (laughs) That's one Jerry that uh, of of all the things that, that I kind of remember about all the different turbulent stuff that happened. Uh, Joe Lacob, uh, one said that he had 200 people that when he was fired, that were all happy to see him go, that not a single person out of the 200 person staff over the Warriors was sad to see him go that the, the players liked him. And he said, Oh, he did a good job. But like, you can't have it where 200 people in a building hate you and, and keep you around. So Tony, Jill, uh, let's get your, your fully formed opinions on, uh, on, on Mark Jackson as a candidate. You can, you can cite his coaching. You can cite anything else you want to, but, uh, but it's your turn to speak. I mean, Jerry said it funnier than I would have said it, but it's like, well, we've talked in this podcast a lot. It's been like (laughs) something we've hit on since the beginning is like the dire situation that the organization is in across the board from ownership to, you know, the front office to the players, they've got contracts coming up and, and people are sour and the playoff drought. And to me, it's like, of all the how many people are on the planet like eight billion something like that we're going to trust the future of the franchise on mark jackson i just it's this so, too much risk if they were in a better position and you want to take a shot on mark jackson fine but with the the consequence that is behind whoever they hire here there's just too many variables in a mark jackson hire to me that it's just, like the level of risk to me is insane and unnecessary there i think that's a good point if you're the lakers and the nets you can you can fire your coach and, and roll the dice on Mark Jackson because you've got the talent. Yeah. But where you have young impressionable guys and you have a team that hasn't made the playoff in 16 years, Mark Jackson probably isn't the guy you should go to in the hopes of turning that ship around. And if it goes south, all of that stuff is just going to pile on top of everything else, right? Compared to somebody who doesn't necessarily have those issues coming in and going south here like i think that stuff just will amplify it more okay i'll i'll I, we don't need to talk about him anymore 
current broadcaster Mark Jackson. That's our opinions on him, and 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 that's what we're sticking to. And I, I want to run away from him as quick as I possibly can here. Um, Milwaukee's uh, Darvin Ham, and then Milwaukee's Charles Lee. Jill, what do you have for us on on on? You can go one at a time on those. Oh, Darvin. I love Darvin. I've been wanting to see him get a shot for a long time. So I call him uh, the Kevin Bacon of the bunch. Just kind of those like that joke of the six degrees of, you know, separation, Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon. So <laughs> he's coached under or alongside four of the other six candidates that um, outside himself, uh, where he first got hired again under Mike Brown. Uh, when Mike Brown got fired, uh, Mike D'Antoni was hired. And so then he was under Mike. Um, and then he was also on the bench with uh, Steve Clifford that year on the Lakers. And then he has spent uh, the last five seasons, I believe, or six seasons with Lee between Atlanta and um, Milwaukee. And so I, I would be a dream for me to see Darvin Ham on the side calling the hammer play and having Mark Jones calling out the hammer play that Ham called. Um, and it can be anybody standing in the corner shooting a three, but I would love to see um, him be able to call the play that was named after him. Um, and for those that don't know, George Carl um, created that play for Darwin when uh, he was coaching him on the bucks and he was constantly spin uh, doing the spin move and throwing it to the corner for Ray Allen and Ray Allen makes everything. And so um, that's how the hammer play uh, came to be. And so I think that would be really cool as a coach to be able to, to call your own play that that's named after you. Um, something interesting. He won a ring as a player under Joe Dumars. And we also know that he uh, was with Atlanta under Mike Budenholzer. And so he has that uh, relationship with Wes Wilcox. So I think um, that could possibly come into play, having that relationship with both of those guys. Um, you can say that he has head coaching experience because he did coach a G league team. He actually played for the Albuquerque Thunderbirds. Um, and for those that don't recognize them now, they're now the, um, the Cleveland charge. And so, or the Canton charge. And so that's the Cavaliers G league affiliate, but he ended his career playing for them. They then hired him as an assistant and then he became their head coach. And so after uh, a season there, that's where Mike Brown then took him and brought him onto his staff as a player development coach. And the rest, as you say, is history. Um, but eight years as a player, 11 years as an assistant. So you can say he's more than put in the work. Um, and his experience has come under more uh, modern forward thinking coaches like Mike Budenholzer in Atlanta and uh, Milwaukee, Mike Brown and regarding his defense and Mike D'Antoni regarding his offense in LA. So you can say he's kind of played under both of those kind of systems. And then that's under playing under head coaches like Larry Brown, George Carl, and Terry Stotts. Um, I already mentioned about the ring part. And then one thing that's interesting is that Ham was part of building Bud's uh, touted blue box offense. It was a custom built system designed to maximize Giannis by spacing the floor and stretching the defense opening up gaps on the arc and in the dunker spot. It required flexibility and understanding on the part of the coaching staff in order to place everyone in a position to succeed. Players say he walks the walk and talks the talk in terms of high praise for character, charisma, and credibility. He preaches defense as something you can control on a nightly basis. You can't always control if your shots are going to going in, if your shots are going in, 
but you can control your focus on the other side of the ball. Um, on those nights, if you have to build your offense out of your defense, you know, so be it. But I thought that was kind of interesting that he's been given credit for part of, you know, Bud's system. But what I liked about that, it was, it's not like he just has a system, right? And they stuck to it. It was based on building around your roster and what can you do to maximize the roster you have. Again, he's an assistant, so I don't, you know, there's really nothing to, to grab from him on, can he do that as a head coach somewhere? But those are kind of things that excite me as, coming under, you know, those kind of trees where, you know, Bud's been very much credited as being that open door. Um, everyone, all of his assistants kind of do every little thing so that when they get those opportunities, they're ready. It's, they very much believe the Spurs where he came from the Spurs way was, um, train your replacement. Right. And I'll be talking about that with, with Will Hardy as well is, um, they don't let you leave unless they know that you've trained the guy that's taking your spot. And so they make sure everyone's prepared, ready to go. And, um, he's another guy that's been interviewing everywhere. Um, and it still seems like people are shocked every time he doesn't, you know, get it. And I know he, I believe he was the other finalist, um, outside of, uh, it was him, Sam Cassell, and Wes Unseld for that wizard spot. So again, he was right there. Um, and he just hasn't been given that opportunity, but players love him. He's got the experience as a player and as an assistant. Uh, I would love to be the team that takes a shot um, at giving this guy his first real opportunity. And he seems like he can be one that we talked about that can grow with you and, and building that culture. Jerry, what do you think about, about Darvin Ham? Do you have any inside track only that he was an NBA player? Do you remember Darvin Ham playing at all? Oh, I sure do. I, I, I in fact, is, I'm a little pissed at him. Uh, it's not his <laughs> fault, but I, I, I went to Lubbock, Texas, Texas to see him play in college, and then he got hurt early in a game or something. So, so that, uh, you know, that still a little pissed about, you know, you don't want to go to Lubbock for no good reason, and I did. Uh, but uh, you need to go there once just just in general but anyway uh no i honestly think he'd be the very best candidate that that's being mentioned i really do i i uh, i really like the idea that he was a head coach in the g league uh you know the minor leagues i, I really think for guys that uh, that makes a difference to have been a head coach i'm telling you uh, it cuts down some of the risk uh, having been a head coach at some level because it's so different. And, uh, you know, just to point out guys like a, a pretty good coaches like uh, Nick Nurse, Flip Saunders, George Carl, Phil Jackson, they all coached in the G League or at that time the CBA. I remember seeing them. I always used to kid Phil. I said, I remember when you weren't a friggin' genius. Uh, I remember watching you get shit meat out of you by some mediocre teams once in a while, but, uh, that was so, but, but I mean, I, th I think that's no kidding aside. I, I think that's important. And that's why I think with Darwin, I mean, obviously, as Jill pointed out, all the great experiences as an assistant with, uh, terrific basketball guys. And, uh, the fact that he has, you know, played in the league that brings so credibility you know i mean he's a legitimate player in the league and uh like I say as much as anything uh, uh, being a head coach in the minor leagues uh, uh boy in the travel that's involved all the you know basically maybe have one assistant uh 
you've got to be creative. Uh, you know, you got one or two good players today. One of them's gone tomorrow. Uh, you've got to play. So I, I like that a lot. And I always, you know, and I'm, I'm going on here, but I, I was a good friend of Flip Saunders and I thought Flip was just a terrific basketball man, you know, obviously passed away, but he always said that was really helped him as a head coach, because, it, you know, if you want to be creative in the NBA, boy, uh, coming up, through, through the uh, CBA and having to adjust and come up with different offenses and defenses during the year because of personnel changes. So, so he'd be my, he would be my number one choice of, of the, this whole group. I know we haven't talked about them all, but I'll just say that right up front. Well, that's high praise, Jerry. That's really high praise, especially for somebody who you, we've talked about on this podcast a lot, that we need somebody who can, who, who's been there before. So to say that this is that Darvin Ham, who would be a first-time head coach, is your number one overall, that that means that he's left an impression. That's a that's a big deal. I don't know if Jill explicitly said that um, he was her number one, but I will echo Jerry's sentiment that Darvin Ham is my number one on the list as well. I think, you know, there's obviously inherent risk with hiring someone who hasn't been an NBA head coach before, but you can't pay your dues any more than Ham has paid his dues. So if anybody is ever ready as an assistant to jump into the to the main chair, uh, it's Ham. And if you're looking for a guy who can grow at the organization, all the credentials that that Jill listed, um, Ham is is my number one. And it's uh, it's an easy number one for me. It's not really, I mean, there are other good coaches also on this list, but it's not even a, a debate, at least about how I feel about him and, and the fact that we all agree might be a, I don't know, that, that could be a, a bad thing or a good thing. I guess we'll find out. But um, yeah, I, I would not, could not be happier than if Ham is the guy. Yeah. Some, something else I'll also add is that, um, you know, Milwaukee, right? A championship team with championship aspirations, right? More rings. And you know how many players were in and out on rosters this year and you know they were signing guys to you know all kinds of 10-day contracts and things like that he was the guy that they sent out to work everybody to see if he would fit in with what they were doing the trust that they have in him to be able to go out there and work out guys like DeMarcus and you know all these other players and they say that as DeMarcus said he puts you through the ringer like he's not He's not totally easy on you, but he said he has a way of explaining things to you or coaching to you that doesn't bruise your ego. And I think that's pretty huge coming from, you know, a guy with that kind of kind of background. But the, to me, the fact that Milwaukee has they love him and they have that kind of trust in him as that whoever we're going to bring in to our you know championship roster, like we're entrusting you on do you think this guy fits with what we're building and what we're doing and, and things like that? I did not say if he was my number one or not. Um, and I'll talk about this later. Um, he is, I mean, as, as high as you could go on my <laughs> tiers up there, but as, as I'll say later, I'm, I'm not picking a number one because I don't want to be disappointed if my number one is not chosen. <laughs> That's way too smart. But like I said, but like, but like I said, they did five of the guys that, you know, I talked about in my list of coaches that I want to see them talk about. And so I do like some more than others, but I don't want to be extremely disappointed at the end of this. I would be thrilled. <laughs> I would be thrilled if he, if he was the guy, I mean, I talked about him back in, you know, he was the second episode I did. 
um, when it came to, to coaches, Sam Cassell and, and Kenny were the first two that I talked about and, and ham was the next one. So take that for what you will. Yeah, Jill, I'm not going to ride the fence quite as much as you did right there, but I will say that I will say that I haven't picked from this group my my number one, but Ham is certainly up there. He reminds me a lot of like the reputation you'd hear about uh, Monty Williams, about his leadership in the locker room and how players respect him, and and that he's somebody that that earns respect, not just demands it. And there's a lot of that that is like uh, I'd like that in a Kings coach where the players like him, but they fear him a little bit too. I think somebody called him a, a big teddy bear that you'd never want to poke. And that's like, okay, yeah, like I, that's, that's kind of what I'm looking for in terms of accountability, somebody that the players like, but can't necessarily walk on. But uh, yeah, no, I think Darvin Ham is, I think he's, I think he's up there. Jerry, you saying that as, as immediately flipped my script on where I, where I was uh, considering ham and everything. So, uh, so, so uh, I'm, now I got to think about this. Once we, once we hang up here, I'm going to go stare at a corner for a while and think about <laughs> Darvin Ham. So uh, let's, uh, uh, Jill, let's go to, let's go to Charles, uh, Charles Lee. Okay. So um, he's a young 37 and ESPN named him as part of the long runway group um, where a team initiates a uh, rebuild pledges patience to a new culturally oriented team who could nurture and develop a young core. So all things that we would like to say that the Kings would be able to do here. Um, one of the things I thought was really cool as a player in college, he was a shooting guard. The New York times named him as one of college basketball, best non-scholarship players. So this guy's had to work for every, everything he's done. And he took his team Bucknell um, to the tournament multiple times and they upset some of the big dogs and he was a undrafted player, but who saw something in him, the Spurs. And so he was invited to uh, be on the Spurs summer league team. And the coach of that summer league team happened to be coach Bud. And so that's where they first met. And so he had such a good uh, summer league there that they invited him to um, training camp. They said he was one of the last cuts and it was extremely hard for them to cut him. But at that point, they still had Tony Parker, you know, Manu and, you know, their, their championship roster. And so, um, but it just shows that the connections you can make, even if it's that small, because he ended up going to play in Europe and then he went to wall street and he reached out to bud, um, in 2012 and bud said, my assistants, you know, my bench is full, but you know, I'll, I'll keep you in mind. And so he went to uh, be an assistant at his alma mater at Bucknell uh, for two years. And once Bud started having uh, assistants go get hired elsewhere, who was one of the first people he called, Charles Lee. Um, so again, I think that speaks volumes that he'd only had two years in college, but Bud's already saying, you know, come be on my bench. And at that point, you know, Atlanta's a good playoff team and someone to be reckoned with. And so he's been with Bud um, since then, uh, some things that, uh, he says is coach bud helped him see, uh, the game and play the game in a different way. I truly learned how to be a professional player and what kind of work it took, um, to play at that kind of level. And he says that, um, he's tried to do that with all of the players that, you know, that, that come up under him. Something that's really interesting is he was a finalist with the Pelicans before and after the Stan Van Gundy hire. 
So he uh, missed it out, missed out to Stan Van Gundy. And then Stan actually said, I want you to actually come be on my bench. Um, he stayed in Milwaukee, won a ring, but I think that spoke volumes on what the organization and Stan both thought of him. Stan gets fired. He becomes a finalist again, loses out to Willie Green. It, it's, it's worked out for them. Um, he was one of the finalists to replace uh, Nate McMillan in Indiana. Um, and that went to what Nate off of the uh, Toronto bench at the time. And that only lasted a year. Uh, but just from the three seasons alone, he's been interviewed um, and a partial finalist for the Pelicans twice, the Pacers, Wizards, OKC, and the Magic. So again, all rebuilding teams that kind of fit, you know, what the Kings are, the Kings are doing. So I think you can see, sorry, she's going, that he fits that long runway type that, you know, that ESPN was, um, was talking about. Something that the Pelicans really liked was that his relationship with Giannis and Middleton is credited very much on being understand um, how the two of them work together. And something the Pelicans liked was how he could probably uh, or possibly do something with um, Ingram and Zion at the time. And so maybe the Kings kind of use something as maybe he could pair Sabonis and Fox and have that kind of, that kind of relationship. And so mm-hmm. You know, that's something to, to think about, but I'll end it with this. The last things that, that ESPN said was few assistant coaches saw a bigger season to season jump in our informal poll than Charles Lee, uh, who was 35 at the time. So he's two years older now, who's in a sixth season working under Mike Budenholzer in Atlanta and now Milwaukee fans of Lee who played professionally overseas before spending a couple of years as an equity trader on wall street, tout him as a five tool coach. Who's every bit as comfortable having meaningful conversations with the backup point guard as he is dining with the team owner. Those who've worked with him say he has a a intuitive sense of how to inspire improvement from players, but also understands high level strategy, the preparation required to implement it. He's in the words of one peer, someone who's categorically going to be an NBA head coach. Lee Shine left last offseason in his first foray of the interview circuit, where those on the other side of the Zoom calls observed a 36-year-old coach with a rare combination of IQ and emotional intelligence. For Lee, it's just a matter of time. So again, with Darvin, I think any of these two guys off, off the Bucks bench, um, it's again, you're coming from that tree where they seem to just flourish when, when they leave, uh, they leave the nest, so to speak. If you look at the, um, Quinn Snyder's of the world, the, uh, Taylor Jenkins, Kenny Atkinson, all those guys come from this kind of environment of built up in that. And so Lee's another guy that, that gets me excited for his relationships. And then you go to see them say, you know, he has the, X's and O's, the IQ and the emotional intelligence to actually reach the players. Jerry, what do you, th- what do you think about, uh, about Charles Lee? He took a little bit different path uh, to a coaching spot than what Darvin Ham does, but he is still coming from that, uh, from that, uh, that pop branch, you know, that comes from bud. Is there, is there any concern there that he's only been coaching for as long as he's been coaching or do you have any hesitations towards him? I would have some hesitation just because I don't think he's as uh, prepared and qualified as say ham. I mean, in other words, it just, I like the, uh, if you're going to get an assistant uh, that's never been a head coach and get one with as many varied experiences 
and uh, different types of coaches and things like that. I just think it cuts down your, uh, you know, gives you a little better chance for getting the right guy. That's all. Nothing against him. I, I would agree with everything Jill said. He's probably on a fast track, but uh, that doesn't mean he's the best candidate. Uh, I mean, certainly his experience in my mind doesn't come close to what Darvin Ham's had. That's just sure. doesn't mean he won't be the second coming of Steve Kerr. I don't know, but uh, but I, I know that uh, you know. To me, if you the the higher you make, uh, you you want to cut your risks as much as you can. And I and I think uh, experience isn't always a bad thing. The more you have of it, uh, especially different experiences with. And I like to say with different head coaches, a little different mentalities, uh, maybe some bad teams, even all that's all that's good stuff. So anyway, but hey, he's a nice, nice candidate. I don't think he'd be the right one for the Sacramento Kings. Tony, how much does that 11 years uh, difference in, in Darwin and, and, and Charles make for you? It, it's, it is a difference to me. It kind of reminds me of um, the general manager search when the Kings brought in um, Gupta and McNair from Houston. And it was like, oh, we like this like tree. We like this archetype for a coach. And maybe one sells us better than the other in interviews. Maybe one gets hired by someone else. But we've got, you know, kind of the guy behind him also lined up for an interview as well. Because I expect both of them to be busy this summer with interviews. And maybe it's a situation where Ham gets hired by somebody else. And, you know, thank God we also interviewed Lee, who, who is a good candidate in his own right. And if they like, you know, that tree... Um, that line, then it's another great option. So uh, I have him somewhere that in the top half of my candidates list below Ham. Um, and, uh, you know, sounds like a, a great candidate to me. We'll see if he gets the job. But I, I do think that maybe there is some element of uh, Ham may get scooped up by somebody else. And we got to kind of cover all of our bases here. Jill, let's go to our last one. He's our youngest uh, candidate of everybody. And that's uh, another guy from the pop tree at one point or another. Let's go to uh, Boston's Will Hardy. Yes. So he's even younger. He's only like 34. Um, he played basketball um, in division three. Oh, let's see. So he's a rapidly rising name in the coaching profession, um, coaching um, openings in the last recent years. He's done interviews with the Knicks, the Pacers, Oklahoma city thunder uh, to name a few. So he started as a um, basketball ops intern with the Spurs. So he said he had to beat out 69 other people to get that job. But how he credits getting it was his um, college basketball coach had a relationship with Pop. Um, and I want to say Pop might have played with him. Like there was, some, there was something in their background that connected. And so he's one that always says... Um, be cognizant and be aware of your, not necessarily connections, but your relationships, because you never know when me playing three division basketball could lead to you getting an internship with the Spurs. Like it just, it can be, you know, there, you never know where the connection could meet. So he said, he's very cognizant of that. And so, um, after his one year of basketball ops, uh, intern, he said, Dennis Lindsay told him to, um, be seen, but not heard. So he said he doesn't think he said anything for that year. So for those that don't, uh, don't know, Dennis Lindsay um, is now the head of the Utah Jazz. And so he's got that relationship. So he said he did everything, obviously, that was told and did enough to where they hired him as an assistant video coordinator that next year. So 
Um, anyone listening to this, they know like my favorite position is a, is a video coordinator. I love guys that, that go up through that. Um, and so he did enough there to then the next year be hired as the video coordinator. So what Will's trying to do is be the next um, Spurs video coordinator, right? That becomes the household name. Uh, Sam Presti was a video coordinator for the Spurs. You have uh, Mike Budenholzer uh, as a video coordinator for the Spurs. Uh, James Rago was a video coordinator for the Spurs. Um, have all you know gone on to be successful in their in their endeavors. Um, some other coaches around the league that started with that, or at least head coaches. Mike Brown was one that I mentioned, right? In in Denver, you have Eric Spolstra who started that way in that room um, with the Heat, and then uh, Frank Vogel was also another uh, video coordinator. So something he said that uh, Pop put him through the ringer essentially with those. Um, at the beginning, he said he was kind of like the bunching the punching bag of players where they just threw him out there and then, you know, he kind of had to go wherever he said, but then pop started, uh, breaking down the, the, you're writing all this stuff down for me, but do you understand what you're writing down and said, he made him kind of walk through the X's and O's that he was being responsible for, um, in his, uh, you know, of what he was writing in his, his, you know, video critiques and things like that. And so he said that got him, you know, a total other appreciation for, you know, how you see the game and just being able to, to get off of pop's mind. And then something else he says that, uh, once he, when he was still as the video coordinator, uh, Brett Brown was still there as an assistant. And he said, Brett, uh, when he worked in the video room, he said, I sat in his office all day and almost, um, watching him go through his process, asking him questions. He'd ask me questions. And he said, just starting to learn um, how he, how Brett got answers to the questions he was asking, um, how he was evaluating a team that they were going to play, how to figure out, uh, you know, how to work a game plan, um, things like that. And so he says that uh, coach Bud was there at the time. He said that he learned from coach Bud, um, how much there was to defense. Uh, he learned from Brett Brown uh, that they how to think outside the box on offense. And sorry for Bud, it was how to all that there is about offense and defense. Uh, Brett Brown how to think outside the box. And then Edere Messina was there um, still at the time, and he said Messina is one of his favorite people ever, and he would just kind of follow him around. And that there was so much more to the offense that he could ever comprehend. Messina's one guy that I always wanted to be a coach for the King. So um, I loved hearing him bring him up, but he says that, like I talked about before under the Spurs thing was um, having your replacement be ready. And he said, if Brett wasn't ready, if Bud wasn't ready to go on and do, you know, their pieces and Brago that he never would have been able to get his promotions along the way. And so that's something he's tried to implement since he was with the Spurs, he said he would take the video guys um, and do the same kind of thing um, that they did to him. And the video guy under him is actually an assistant with um, the Hornets right now. So you can see that he didn't just talk the talk. He kind of walked it right. That it showed that he was kind of doing the same thing. And he said that he's doing that same kind of thing in Boston. Um, I'll skip forward a little bit. So he was an assistant for years with the Spurs. And then when Emi uh, got hired on in Boston, they had that relationship. And so um, Emi hired him to be his right-hand guy 
and Boston. And they were saying during the COVID days, if um, Ime was ever going to go out, that Will Hardy was going to be coaching that team. So again, that shows what Brad Stevens and Boston thinks of, you know, the Will Hardy uh, at this point. And so he's another guy that similar to Darvin and um, Lee, it's not a matter of, of, you know, if it's, it's when, and there's a lot of whispers that a lot of people think he could be that next Eric Spolstra. Um, so, you know, just throwing that out there, he's, to me, he is a wild card cause he's 34, right? He's young, but he's kind of, you know, gone through the levels again of what you would want to see, uh, you know, organically a guy go through as he's rising up the ranks in an organization. Barry, I'm curious, how young is too young? And is Will Hardy too young for you? Well, you know, I, I, I mean, I think he's, he really needs a few more years uh, really on the bench. I think he's in a great spot with Yudoka, uh, you know, and they got a good team. They're going to win and, and uh, yeah, he'll get his chance, but uh, yeah, do I think he's too young, too young, too inexperienced really. Uh, I would say both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I agree with Jill. I like the idea of guys coming up through the video ranks and uh, obviously it's uh, it can lead some you know, to the front office, uh, to the coaching ranks. Uh, I know the Kings for years had a guy named Bubba Burridge was our video guy during the Rick Edelman years. He's a director of player personnel with the Phoenix Suns, uh, you know, uh, for instance. Uh, you know, of course, I say I'm so old. I was, when Jill was talking about that. I was thinking, you know, when I first came with the Kings, I was actually video coordinator because we didn't have actually. <laughs> I did I did all the video work at home off two VCRs breaking down. I was a video I was a video <laughs> coordinator, me and my son, who didn't get paid. He wow. helped me. And I was also the uh, advanced scout and also the college scout and broke down college tape. So, but then, you know, they, I made 38,000 a year, so I've been paid pretty well. So I couldn't bitch. <laughs> Tony, what about you? Is, uh, is Will Hardy the next Jerry Reynolds? Um, oh, Will Hardy should hope. Let's have a, a career like Jerry Reynolds. Um, Will Hart, he's the local local guy. I didn't even I didn't know much of him until I heard his name, and then I started googling to find out that he grew up or he went to college in Massachusetts. Obviously, he works in Massachusetts now, so I've got a soft spot for him, I guess. There, and he's a guy again. Didn't know much about before his name popped up. What I do all the time with these guys, my first thing is I go to YouTube, I put the name in there, and I watch the interviews. I just want to see these guys talk. And I did that with Hardy, and I loved everything I heard him say. Is he ready now? I have no idea. Is he super young? Yes. Do I watch him talk about basketball and think that this is both a good head coach and someone that, you know, I would like to play for, anyone would like to play for? Absolutely. So he's a tough one where um, didn't know much going in. Experience is obviously lighter than a lot of these guys. But what I see and what I read is all so good that, uh, you know, what I wouldn't be mad at the hire, but is it risky? For sure. Um, for sure. But there's a lot to like about him also. There's a lot to like about Will Hardy. So we've gone through the coaches now, but there's a lot of questions that remain. And uh, Tony tossed up a call for questions earlier today on Twitter. And I want to use that as a springboard now for some conversation uh, that, that revolves around what we've been kind of talking about this whole time. Um, so the first, the first question we've got is pretty simple. Um, I might even simplify it a little bit more. Vincent on Twitter asked us to simply rank our candidates one through seven. Uh, I'm not going to do that. We'll, we'll do uh, we'll do one through three. And Jill, uh, you you uh, talked about this a little bit earlier, but I'm going to let you <laughs> take it away first. Why don't you go first? Yeah. <clears throat> so I talked about this earlier and all. Um, 
I don't want to jinx anything. And I know how much people have been recently paying attention to the coaching podcasts I've done. And I've tried to put it out there that I am not necessarily giving you names to root for. Um, I'm giving you names to be hopefully excited about. And so how I'm looking at it, if you look at the order, I maybe put things out. Maybe you can come up with, you know, your two cents on who I, uh, maybe value more than others. Um, but I, I'm not going to put it into the world cause I'm not going to jinx it. And as I told Jerry and Will before we started again, um, I don't want this place to disappoint me again. So at this point, I will just say I would enjoy any of the three new guys, you know, getting getting that shot and and growing with the team. I, I would genuinely be happy um, with that. So I, I would like to see some fresh blood in here and um, some of these new guys getting a shot similar to how most of these other organizations are growing in that sense. Okay, Jerry, what about you? You don't have to necessarily rank them one, two, three. You can just say your top three if you want, or you can rank them if, you feel, if you're feeling lucky. Darvin Ham would be my number one choice. Uh, uh, that just, uh, no, no reason to run from that. I, that's who I feel like of this group. That's one, that's the guy I think I'd feel most comfortable with uh, uh, due to his uh, experience as an assistant and by his background. Uh, uh, definitely, you know, uh, if, if you went a different route, you know, more proven, proven guy, uh, I think uh, Steve Clifford would, would be up there because I, I do think there's, he'd have three or four good years. And I know that uh, as a, as a fan, uh, you'd like to see somebody with maybe longer, more years in them. But then I also know that you actually are allowed to hire another coach if need be, they'll, they'll will be available uh, in years to come. So it's not, it, it's not the end of the world. Uh, uh, so, you know, the, uh, Will Hardy definitely is uh, kind of an interesting guy. I, I think that I, I just kind of wish he uh, had a little more experience, I think. And with Mike Brown, you know, I, I think he deserves another chance, but you know, if nothing else, and this is a absolutely irrational stupidity on my part, which most of you know already is there all the time, but I'm sick of hiring warrior people. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That, that's it. I mean, that there's no good reason other than that. That's it's it. Fair. Totally fair. <laughs> Tony, what, Tony, what about you? Um, Darvin Ham, number one, Charles Lee, number two. And then against all, like everything in my being is saying this is a bad idea, but I just can't quit it. I got Mike D'Antoni number three. There's just something there that I'm like, uh, I I'm sentimental a little bit towards. I just like, I like Mike D'Antoni. I can't help it. If, if yeah. he's here, I'm going to get excited. I know it's like irrational in some ways, but if Mike D'Antoni, if that, if that tweet comes down the feed, the Kings hire Mike D'Antoni, I'm going to be like, all right, let's go. This is like kind of exciting and weird and fun. And they got a legend in the building. So there is a part of me that, that I do like there. I'll, I'll leave him at three though. So he's not yeah. my number one, but he's on the list. So I will say this, Will, because yeah. The first question that got this question was, what are Jill's three out of the, it was not who do you yeah. want to be the coach, but how would you out rank the, Ham, the Lee, and ones, Hardy? Right? So I would say I would rank them Ham, Lee, and Hardy. So take that for what you will. Okay. <laughs> hey, by the way, yeah, uh, to Tony, to your point, if a Mike D'Antoni was 60, I'd say number one. There, yeah. yeah. But 
guess what? Yeah, that's but guess yeah. what? He's not. He's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um I'm, I'm kind of in between here. I like I mean honestly, Jerry Jerry changed a lot by by putting Darvin Ham number 1. Jerry, I thought Darvin would be like a top 3, but maybe not maybe not in that mix for you. So, uh I'll 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 agree with the consensus here and say Darvin Ham is my my numero uno. I'm going to I'm going to call a tie. I'm going to say that the the two-headed monster of Steve Clifford and Mike D'Antoni together forming one giant beast of a of, of a coaching staff that's that's my number two they're tied very expensive will it's very, very expensive coaching staff. i could get behind it and i, and behind I it. don't care it would be it would be wonderful either one of those guys is fine both those guys together that's that's the money that's where that's where that's where uh, that's where the kings are, are cooking with gas there and uh, i think my third is probably will hardy i know he's the youngest i know I, i'm thinking of like when lane kiffin was hired by the raiders and how that didn't go so well because he was the boy genius but like uh, uh, Tony, like uh, like like you said that you just go on YouTube and look up their interviews. There's something about Will Hardy that I'm like, yeah, I think he's got it. It might take yeah. another two or three years, and the Kings can't be that patient, so he's probably not the guy. I mean, yeah, if you're looking at Memphis, like Taylor Jenkins, he, sure. he that's sure. right there when they yeah. when they hired him. Well, then I don't feel guilty, Jill. It's it's Will Hardy, and I'm happy to hear it. Okay, so um, let's see here. Um, next question: uh, Dutch Kings fan in UK asks. Uh, to what extent can a head coach raise the ceiling of a roster? Is there a coach out there that could make the Kings into, and he says this, let's say something crazy, a top 20 defense with the current roster, or is there just so much that a coach can do? Well, there is just so much a coach can do. I mean, you're, you're, I don't think you're going to hire anybody that's going to take the Kings from, uh, you know, uh, 12th, 13th in the West to top three, uh, but uh, to 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 the point, and I think it's a very good point. Yeah, I think somebody that really has a defensive background and will demand better defense will hold players accountable for defense. Uh, that that's probably easier to improve defense than it is offense because it's most besides scheming, and certainly that's part of it, but it's effort, and it's a uh, you know basically. You know, I would say, you know, an offense, it's about poise and patience and, and intelligence, how you play under control on defense. It's, it's uh, basically, if you got a scheme in place, uh, balls out, go get them, uh, stay in front of them, uh, put a body on them. Uh, we're seeing it in the playoffs now uh, every day. Uh, so, so to answer the question in a nutshell, yes, I think you could improve this team with the pretty much same personnel. Uh, a couple of notches. I really do because it just wasn't any accountability that I saw last year. Uh, so, so yeah, get somebody that's going to hold them accountable. Yeah. I mean, I think two of the names on the list are guys that have made a career of it and Steve Clifford and Mike Brown. Um, they've had a wide variety of rosters. And like I mentioned, Mike Brown, 16 of his 18 defenses were in the top of the league. Um, same with, with Clifford, it was five of his eight and he took them literally from the bottom of the league into the top five, top 10. So, I mean, those are two guys that just have a history on being able to tap in on, um, the defensive side where, you know, not necessarily on the offense, but they get it out of their players on, on that side of the ball. You know, the, the other point I, I want to make, too, is that uh, you can see it and you never know with with a, an unproven guy. You know, it's been assistant, say, like a, a Ham or or Hardy or Lee or any of those guys. But we saw it with the Udoka. In other words, uh, as a head coach, 
clearly Boston is playing harder and more consistent defense. And sometimes just the young voice, uh, former player, uh, those kinds of things, you know, uh, can have an impact. So there's a lot of ways of getting there, but, but I think it really, it's not nuclear science defense. It really is, you know, you can have some, some basic schemes, but uh, it's, it's a matter of holding, you know, you get a whole bunch of guys playing like uh, Davion Mitchell and, 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 don't be surprised yeah. if you get yeah. better. You know, I mean, Davion, Davion gets after it. And, uh, you know, you see like you see in that little guy with the Pelicans, Alvarado, I mean, <laughs> little, little shit. I mean, he's driving Chris Paul yeah. nuts. <laughs> yeah. And even uh, one more too, Will, was our guy, Brian Keith. He had, that's, that's another thing that he's touted with um, as an, as an assistant around the league, wherever he goes, that's kind of what he's tasked with, and he's shown he can do that in multiple places. I agree, Joe. I, I was trying to avoid his name only because I didn't want to cry on the podcast. So we're uh, we're gonna run right through him though. And uh, Tony, what do you what do you uh, what do you think about this? Yeah, I would say as someone who's completely on the outside of being inside the basketball world, quantifying like how much value you gain from a head coach is one of the hardest things to do if you've never been in it. It's just hard to know. It's hard to know. But I will say this. A few teams made huge leaps this season, and it wasn't because they made a big trade or a big draft pick. You know, Jerry mentioned Udoka with the Celtics. They have largely the same roster. They made a huge leap. Uh, you got the Memphis Grizzlies, largely the same roster. Jenkins has been there for a couple of years, but they made a huge leap. Then you've got Chris Finch in Minnesota, largely the same roster, and they made a huge leap. And yes, you can say a lot of that leap was because they had young players who, you know, developed internally. But guess what? The Kings have that too. The Kings have young players that have another leap inside them. So if you get the right coach with the right young players that can take a leap, you can see it. It happens every year. No better example than this year when you have two teams, both, you know, second in the East, second in the West, you can barely make a leap higher than what the Celtics and the Grizzlies have done. And again, that was largely because of internal improvements from your young players and the right coach in place. So it can absolutely happen here. Even look at the Pelicans right now. I mean, at the yeah. right time where fresh, I mean, it's, he's getting a completely different production out of, out of that team than Stan Van Gundy was ever able to get um, out of them. And sometimes, like you said, it's just a different voice too, that it's um, maybe someone explaining things differently, someone simplifying things, um, having the right kind of players that like the little Nat that is Alvarado out there, just, you know, and Herb Jones, his length on the outside, like it's, so it just can be that right pairing at the right time and you can go. Yeah. And, you know, simplify it there too, is that sometimes it's just simple as letting them play. In other words, I mean, it would stand let Alvarado play. Now, Corey, you know, I mean, I don't know. I, I mean, so, so there's some of that. I, I, one little last thing and I'm, I know I'm going, but it's going to be interesting to me, whoever is hired, are they going to be able to hire their staffs? Amen. And I mean yeah. their staffs. Yeah. And I, I will be watching with great interest. Great point. Great <laughs> point. Too, Jerry. Jerry, I'm trying to think of the last time that we we could confirm even that the that the Kings allowed a head coach to hire their own staff, like from top to bottom, because it's been Dave Yeager, at least since right? Vi- yeah. Well, Yeager had uh, he didn't he have Bobby Jackson on his staff? Yeah, he had Bobby Jackson. Uh, and that, yeah, yeah, that wouldn't have not yeah. in the Vivek era. So it's it's been a while. You almost have to go back to uh, I think you have to go back to Rick Adelman. Really? Because even, you know, Eric Musselman, yeah. I think had, you know, I think Jeff uh, 
had some, you know, just a couple of guys he wanted to protect a little bit. And Eric wanted a job. I mean, so, so you get that. I mean, I get that. Uh, Cause now with staff so large, most coaches will say, well, okay, I can take, use this guy and that guy. Sure. But, uh, but I think under ideal circumstances, I think if you're really trying to change things, uh, you need change. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think as much as them getting to hire their own staff, keeping it too, not having your coach go, Hey, jump shit because we're not going to last another year. So go find something else. Like, cause then that leads to, to change and turmoil too. Like being able to choose your staff and, you know, have it last. Well, how about, you know, with, uh, as much George, as you can, George Carl had a guy, you know, fired out from under him during the season. I mean, it's like, what, yeah. <laughs> you know? And, and so anyway, oh. I, I was, I was thinking about this when Jill was listing out, uh, especially all the Budenholzer uh, guys, like, like how nice it sounds like for a regular organization to have, to be afraid that they're losing their assistant coaches because they're too good or that like, Oh, like, Oh man, we, we had a couple of really nice assistants and they got hired for head coaches. And then a couple more moved in and like with the Spurs and with the bucks. And like, I can't think of the last time a, a King's assistant coach wound up as a head coach somewhere else. And they were hired away because they were too talented, not because they either got booted or, or the GM didn't like the, the way that they were scheming with somebody, so they booted them that way. Or there's all these other reasons for King's assistants to go and leave, <laughs> and not a single one of them has been because, well, they're just too damn good. Well, you know, right. you, here again, you have to go back to Rick Adelman. I mean, Byron Scott yeah. and uh, Terry Porter, the two guys. Yeah. You know, they didn't have, you know, Byron had a pretty long career, but Terry had a couple of gigs as well as college but uh, yeah you have to go back there and, and it's all based on winning as it should be sure. and nobody's i think all assistant coaches know that i mean if you're on a losing you know your head coach is losing you're losing too uh and that's how it's tough so, sure. as it should sure. be all right this one's specifically for jerry only because jerry you're the you're the man with the plan okay mike on twitter <laughs> yeah, yeah, mike right. on twitter asked uh, one that I'm sure everyone wants wants to know, and, and and Jerry, you're the guy for it. What goes into a coach interview? Is there a set of questions? Is it like any other job interview, or more like the coach makes a presentation on why he should be the pick for the team? Well, that, that's a great question, and each each team is probably different. There uh, uh, to to try to answer it is all those things should be true. Uh, you really should have a, a set of questions uh, that really uh, would help you make that decision. Uh, and also the coach should have a presentation ready. In other words, uh, one thing, you know, a coach should know all your players, have some idea about their strengths and weaknesses, have some idea of some thoughts of like, if I got the job, I, I would like to do this defensively. I'd like to do this offensively. Uh, I think we could, you know, that sort of thing. So, I, I, but I think both, I, I think the only thing that's always worried me is a lot of time coaching searches are done by people who've never coached. And so it's always, I mean, that's like hiring a teacher and you've never taught. Uh, what kind of questions do you ask? Would you expect from a teacher or ask a teacher if you've never been in a classroom? <laughs> and I think, and I think that, uh, it, and, and the evidence is sometimes in the results. Uh, so but th both those things, uh, yeah, you should should really have a legitimate basketball type questions regarding what what's you think's important uh, it, for the coach to know and 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 uh, 
uh, that he can express to you as well as he should be able to prove to you that he is thinking about the team and prepared to coach your team. This, this question goes hand in hand with this last one, but I'm going to twist it a bit here. A melancholy Kings fan asked, um, when is Jerry getting his interview for the head coaching job? And I'm going to ask Jerry instead, if you are a candidate for this job, how would you personally sell your vision for the team? What's your vision for this team, Jerry? And how would you sell it if you were a coaching candidate? Well, there's no friggin' chance in hell I'd be a candidate. Uh, <laughs> so let's let's establish that right up front. <laughs> uh, I'd be dead by December. Uh, so uh, so there's that. But uh, well, no, I, I definitely, if I were going to interview, I, I definitely would uh, try to come. You know, I don't know what questions they'd ask me, but my my presentation would be I'd I'd want to come up with a. a a defensive scheme saying, okay, this is what we can do if with this roster, okay, we're going to, we are consistently going to pick up past at the top, at the mid court line. Our guards are going to start picking up dribblers before they cross the midline. If they don't do that, we're going to, we're going to make changes because they have to do that. And, uh, and certainly we want, we want to double team wherever we can on pick and rolls and, and really make them, you know, make teams make some decisions. Don't just, uh, you know, play straight up all the time. I'd also say we want to mix up our defenses. We want to play, we will play more zone. Uh, we will play uh, straight man to man a few minutes. We'd like to go into a zone uh, and then maybe a, a basically trapping and doubling certain key players in spots. So in other words, uh, we're going to, we're going to tr obviously focus on defense, pressure on the ball, but try, try to do different things uh, consistently throughout the game. In other words, uh, I've always said, if you're, if you're playing a, a, a pick and roll with uh, defensively with Magic Johnson and James Worthy, if you do the same thing every time, don't be surprised if they score about every time. <laughs> They're that good. Now you can, and you can do three or four things uh, and they'll still score. But uh, to maybe one, maybe one time they won't. That's so. Uh, so you've got to come up with be creative defensively, not just about creative offense. And then, of course, offensively, you say I think you always try to build your offense around your best players. In other words, so it's so a best offensive player. So come, we're going to try to come up with a scheme that really does utilize uh, De'Aaron Fox and Demonis Sabonis uh, to where they get. The, the the most touches the ball in places where they can be effective uh, try to try to utilize De'Aaron as less of a playmaker and more of as a scorer uh, Demontis uh, you know uh, basically he should be almost a point center uh, I think to be really effective and you know things like that I mean I think you could easily come up with you know uh, basically this these are you know build it around your best players you can, the role players fit in. It's like, I think Jill talking about Milwaukee, uh, the, the box or whatever for Giannis. Well, yeah. Uh, now the box for Sabonis wouldn't be nearly as effective. I don't think. So, you, uh, you know, it's like the old triple post offense with, uh, with Michael Jordan. I always said that, you know, that was such bullshit because all that was, was all four players. They knew where they were supposed to be when Jordan had the ball and stay the frig out of the way. And, uh, and at the end of games, that's exactly what it was. The other four stayed out of his way and he knew where they were. And uh, now, it, you know, during the course of the game, they actually were involved differently. 
but uh, I've, I've over jibber jabbed here, but, but basically that that's what, that's what the coach needs to come in and do, whether it's a Darvin ham or Charles Lee or well, Hardy have, have a good idea of, Hey, this is how we're going to try to play defense with these guys. This is what I think they could do better. This is what I'll expect them to do better. And offensively, uh, these guys are these couple guys. We, we think we can build an offense around these guys, and then we'll find find uh, ways to make the other players a little more effective if they can fit in. So, well, Jerry, I don't it. know if anyone else thinks this way, but you are hired. Congratulations, <laughs> you got the job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, like I say, carry my body out of there, but yeah, <laughs> well, we've got we've got Mike D'Antoni coming on as an assistant. I'm hiring him yeah, just to back yeah. you up, so you're good. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we're going to roll through to our uh, Anything But King segment where I give uh, Tony, Jerry, and Jill a chance to talk about any game, any other team, any other storyline from the sports world or cooking world if Tony um, missed out on, on the playoffs uh, that they encountered over the last two weeks. The only rule is they don't get to talk about the Kings, which shouldn't be hard because, well, Kings aren't playing in the playoffs. So, um, Tony, why don't I let you go first? What is your uh, Anything But Kings uh, uh, selection for this week? Well, they're on right now. I'll just to peel back the curtain. It is um, it's Monday night, uh, the 26th. So the Celtics are hopefully, maybe, possibly completing the the sweep against Brooklyn. Uh, that's been the series I've watched most closely for you know obviously you know uh, proximity reasons. But I just think the Celtics, um, what they're doing is pretty special. Like Yudoka had a rough start, and people here were not pleased with how the Celtics came out. And even without Robert Williams, you know, I didn't see this coming against Brooklyn. Uh, I knew the Celtics, you know, they peaked at the right time, but uh, I, I definitely thought Brooklyn was going to put up a, more of a fight than they seem to have so far. And it's not over yet. We'll see how it, how it plays out. But I'll just say the, the feeling here is that the Celtics are legitimate title contenders. And that was not the feeling for most of the season. And I kind of feel the same way watching them play. They have the, they're doing the right stuff at the right time. And there always is a team that peaks at the right moment. Some peak too soon. Some don't peak at all, but the Celtics have found their groove at the exact right time. And I've had a lot of fun watching them, despite the fact that I'm not a, you know, a, a huge fan of theirs. I have a lot of friends and family that are, so I, I, I like to see them win and uh, watching them play and the excitement here has been pretty fun for me. So that's kind of where my basketball focus has been the last couple of weeks. Jill, what about you? I have a two-parter. So to me, the Pelicans are making a great case for why the play-in exists um, and, and what they've been able to do to, to go into it um, and, and what they're doing with the Suns. But I will say that the um, Timberwolves and the Memphis series has been so much fun to watch. And I'm really impressed with what Chris Finch has been able to do. I know he's taken a lot of heat the last couple of days for, um, you know, for mistakes that he's made with timeout calling, you know, and things like that. But, um, to me, what, what he has this Timberwolves believing right now too, um, and going nose to nose with Memphis is, is really impressive. And it's two teams that are look really similar right now. And it's being so young, it's going to be interesting to see, um, who comes out on top because I think both of them right now, it's, they are young, but it's also the inexperienced young. And so it'll be interesting to see how they close it out. But um, defensively, that that series has been a blast to watch. I've got to say only because one of my very best friends is a Timberwolves fan who has suffered alongside me as a Kings fan for forever that I'm 
uh, the the two uh, the two blown leads that the Timberwolves have are are disappointing in general. But like, I really enjoy how Cat has Carl Anthony Towns has had a couple of bad games, and then he's answered each one with an, a pretty incredible game. And it's one of those things that I, I I know that the Kings are still pretty far off from getting there themselves. But just watching watching the Timberwolves fans just absolutely go ballistic when they get the chance is one of those things like I can see Fox coming back with a good game or, or somebody like a Sabonis having a great game after a tough one. And it, it, I I guess we're not supposed to talk about the Kings here, but I I can't wait for that regardless of when it is two years from now, seven years from now, 10 years from now. Like I want to freak the hell out and watching the Timberwolves fans do it, who are just nearly as beleaguered as the Kings are. uh, It's been, it's been terrific to watch even just the, just the, the fans of those games. And uh, I'm very, very happy for those Timberwolves. Jerry, what about you? Well, uh, really, uh, my thoughts kind of along with you guys talking about the Timberwolves, you know, there's so much outcry about uh, Coach Finch didn't call a timeout 21 straight points. And that kind of brings me back to one of my uh, little historical situations as an assistant coach. I, I was assistant coach with Bill Russell and me and Willis Reed were the assistants and we were playing the Lakers. And uh, we, we went 23 straight points by the Lakers and didn't call a timeout. And Willis and myself were saying, Bill, Jesus Christ, we got to call a timeout. What the hell? Or, and and, I, and I, I never will forget, <laughs> Bill finally said, you guys, hey, I know what I'm doing. He said, if I call timeout, it would help them more than us. And we and I remember looking at Willis and said, how's that possible? <laughs> but so, so uh, yeah, I was like, I poor, poor Chris Finch is like, yeah, you know, I mean, he screwed up and he admitted it. He's a hell of a coach. Uh, you know, sometimes you do, you get caught up in the emotion negatively as well as positively. And that, uh, sure. you know, but to, to say that that was going to, okay, if you called the time up, they had a one, no, well, probably not, but it was the right thing to do. I think you could have called two of them right in there, been okay. Uh, you know, that's what they're for. <laughs> it's when you call them when you need them and you needed them. But anyway, that, yeah. and, and one last little thought is I just enjoy the playoffs, the physicality of it. You know, it's actual basketball again. And uh, I, I just wish the officials would let the game kind of get like that during the regular season. And, uh, you know, it's like the Celtics and some of these teams now are, you know, they're Pelicans. I mean, they're, they're putting their bodies in there, making the officials make a call. You know, there's not, you know, it's like the little guys driving to the basket. Uh, oh, there's contact. There's a foul. Bullshit. There ain't no foul. You know, make the shot, run down the floor, shut up. Uh, I just, I think it's, I know that's the old school in me, but I just think it's a better game when baskets are when baskets are earned. Yeah, absolutely. I, I just want to mention yeah. for mine uh, the Raptors. Uh, I've been watching the Raptors Sixer series a little bit when I can, and for the, for getting absolutely bushwhacked the first two games, I really think that the the Raptors are one one overtime three pointer from Joel Embiid away from winning the series. And uh, only because I don't like James Harden that much, uh, I've been kind of rooting against the Sixers and 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 the Raptors being such a, a scrappy team, such a like such a like a, a well balanced team. I like Nick Nurse. I like every single piece that the Raptors have collected over the last year, and they're kind of a surprise team for me. Like I, I really wish, like if I if I could change one shot this season, it would just be that that Embiid three pointer rims out, and and Toronto because with Embiid's injury the way it is with his finger. 
Like, I really want to see that in, that 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 Sixers team have to fight th- three games to get out of the playoffs or be absolutely embarrassed in the first round, much like the Nets, who I root, root against. And uh, yeah, you know, too, it, I, I really felt that Toronto, if they could have entered that thing completely healthy with Scotty Barnes, mm-hmm. and then now, of course, Van Bleet's out. Uh, it's just yeah. just too bad because I think they were playing at a level. They were more than capable of beating the Sixers, and as you said, I, yeah. as you know, I, I hate the Sixers, and and I'm just praying that uh, Daryl Morey signs a Harden to a five-year, two hundred fifty million dollar deal, <laughs> and and so and so for 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 the he'll have a John Wall for three years instead of two uh, with Pam. So that, that that's that's what brings me joy at this stage of life. I appreciate that pettiness, Jerry. That's it, that's good stuff. Yeah, no, I know. Really nice. I'm, it's a, I'm a petty yeah. man. Very oh, petty. I feel it. I like it. <laughs> To jump in on that, Jerry, it would have been really nice to have seen the Nets and, and, and the Sixers who have flirted with each other, who have traded superstars back and forth, who have whined and complained and done everything the whole season. The whole oh. There's been so much drama around those two teams. Oh. Watching them both exit in the first round would have just been, would oh, have just been heroin awesome. in my veins. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And, and, and where Fred Van Vliet and, and Scotty Barnes being injured away from that that. I, in my mind, would have happened, not just could have happened, but would have happened. By the way, uh, one last thing. Uh, are you all satisfied with uh, Scotty Barnes getting rookie of the year? Yeah, sure. Yes, sir. Okay. Yeah. Me too. You? Okay, good. Yeah. But I, I, think he's a, I think he was the guy. Yes, he is. Were you surprised at um, Morant getting most improved player? Yeah. that's re- anybody surprised at that's that? That's ridiculous. I mean, on his own team. That's a top mm-hmm. pick. I mean, Desmond Bain is more deserving on his own team so this just happened uh john morant gave the award to desmond bain well he should so how cool is that how yeah cool good, is for that? good for him yeah. i didn't see that yeah, that's that, awesome desmond that's bain awesome. boy and yeah. how, how'd you like to have desmond there it again boy there's a guy that talk talk about yeah talk about fit into the sacramento kings Whew. Mm. young young strong yep knockdown shooter See, not not all four year college players are done growing and are old, right? Like, right. That's right. why he no. fell. It's like people was like, oh, he was four years in college. He's older. He's not gonna, you know, he might have already hit his peak. He should. <laughs> Another player that's showing you, nope. Yeah, he's only going to be able to play at a high level for ten more years. Yeah. Oh, let's re- let's really worry about the eleventh year. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Jones is the same way on the Pelicans, yes. right? His, they had to worry about the offense, but he was, yeah. you know, defensive player of the year, four-year player. And, oh, you know, he's hit the ceiling. You put him yeah. with a shooting coach and look what happens. Yeah. I just don't get that. Don't get that. You're right. Let's, uh, Tony, let's go to you for our uh, Patreon question of the day. Sure. So on every episode of this podcast, we ask at least one question from our Kings Herald patrons at patreon.com slash Kings Herald. Uh, you submit a question, we ask it to Jerry and the rest of our panel, whoever's on the show. And then any questions that don't get asked on the main show, we record one Q&A every month exclusive to Patreon. So if you submit a question, it will get answered either here on the Patreon show somewhere. So you submit it, we'll ask it basically no matter what. I don't think there's been a single question so far that we either haven't asked or haven't been willing to ask. So this question comes from Patreon. It comes from Gene. And it's an interesting one. I'm going to kind of... Uh, mold it differently for Will and Jill and myself, I guess. But he asks, Jerry, of all the Kings players you have known, which player did you enjoy the most to sit down and just talk basketball and why? Mm. 
That's a great, that is a great question. And there, and there's a lot that, that I could put in there. I mean, I, I mean, I certainly on the Monarch side, Kara Lawson was great teacher Pinochero. I just love to talk basketball with those, those people. Uh, and I learned a lot from them. Uh, but Danny Ainge comes to mind. Uh, I, I just thought, uh, yeah, I knew Danny was, uh, was a terrific player, obviously just, uh, he was here a short time, but I mean, he was terrific, even as he was, a uh, uh, career was winding down, uh, one of the best that's ever been here, but, uh, uh, very bright, you know, and, and you really could talk all parts of basketball with him, uh, you know, the coaching parts that various plays, why would they work, why they didn't work, uh, very honest, you know, as a player, uh, you know, he knew the college game, followed basketball, loved the game, you know, so he was, uh, he, he comes to mind. I, I mean, probably, probably later, uh, you know, near the end, of course, a, a, fa a favorite was, was little, I didn't talk to him near as much, but Bogdanovich, Bogey, uh, yeah. there was a, just a basketball guy. Uh, you know, I really liked that. And, and, uh, and I, I, Probably Vladi, you know, Vladi was just a delightful, wonderful uh, winner, uh, you know, that sadly the GM thing has taken away some of the luster of what he was because he was a, the catalyst and, you know, he's one of those guys who just come in the office, sit down, you know, talk basketball, you know, and, and life a little bit, you know, so those three would come to mind. I'll switch it for Will and Jill. Uh, if you could sit down with a player in King's history, the King's universe, um, who would it be? I guess we'll go ahead. I've had the opportunity to meet a couple of King's, uh, King's players. I met Isaiah Thomas and we got to stand around and talk for 10, 15 minutes. And uh, that was over at Sac State uh, during the lockout. Uh, he, he wanted a place to shoot. He was asking for a place in Sacramento to shoot hoops. Me and a buddy, you know, basically, you know, begged him to come to Sac State. So he, he messaged us that, Hey, I'm coming, you know, you guys, you guys show up and, and try to get me in. And so we did, uh, I, I had to go to, uh, I had to go to work. Work wouldn't let me take off work. So I had to, I had to leave, but he spent, I told him like, Hey, I got to go. And he spent 15 minutes talking with me, you know, asking, you know, oh, what do you play? Oh, okay. Just, just was a super personable guy signed anything I wanted to sign, took a picture with me, just, just spent his, you know, time that he could be getting shots up, you know, as the 60th pick in the NBA draft, you know, he, he should be out there working and, and struggling for his NBA spot. And he was, you know, cool as a cucumber made me feel like his best friend. It was, it was one of those things that like, I'll, I'll remember for the rest of my life is Isaiah Thomas being nice to me. And uh, uh, Vladi, when he was a GM, we, we had a chance to sit down with him a couple of times to talk. And he's one of those guys that he didn't need to know my name. He didn't need to know anybody's name in the room. And yet when we walked in, it was, well, hi, Will, how are you? You know, really nice guy. It obviously didn't work out as a GM, and but I, I, I won't say that he wasn't absolutely pleasant to be around while we were sitting there talking and shooting the shit. It was just, uh, it was just one of those things that the decision-making behind it was bad, but his explanation for everything was very cordial, very kind. And uh, yeah, both of those experiences to me were, were ones that it would be like, yeah, I've, I'll always remember those guys and be appreciative for the way they treated me, who was an absolute nobody at the time. Yeah. And it's who I wish I could. Sure. Either, yeah. Um, okay. So mine would be who I wish would be uh, Bobby Hurley. He was the first like Jersey I owned um, that I bought myself uh, when I was a kid and um, he coaches my alma mater. So I would, yeah, he's one where 
I mean, it's so sad what happened with him, but I would love to pick his brain on um, anything. But yeah, that's just being a sentimental there as the first jersey I ever owned as of a Kings player, Bobby Hurley. Tony, what about you? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, I'm a, it may not sound like it all the time because of, you know, what I say at times, but I'm a Vlade guy to, uh, you, could, you couldn't be more of a Vlade guy than me. He's the reason I'm a Kings fan. Um, and I feel like as someone that you, he's my favorite basketball player of all time, which everyone thought that was so silly growing up, like in Massachusetts, like, oh, your favorite player is Vlade Divac, like the guy with the beard. Like, yeah, the guy with the beard, he's the best. Um, so, I, you know, I, I couldn't be more of a Vlade guy. And I feel like his run spans my childhood into my adulthood, I could, you could give me an infinite amount of time and they were, we would, I would never run out of things to ask or talk about with him. So maybe a more of a basic answer because he's such a pillar for this franchise. Um, but Vlade is the guy for me, for sure. Yeah, and one last thing for me, there'd be 50 guys I could come up with, you know, just sure. pretty close, you know, because they're just some really classy young men, not all of them really good players. You know, I always think of a yeah. guy like Jimmy Les, who's a coach at UC Davis and, uh, you knew he was going to be a coach, uh, good, just delightful guy. And, you know, had a few pricks too, but we won't talk about them. <laughs> there are also those random guys like John Brockman, where I'm like, man, I, no. I feel like having a conversation with John Brockman would be pretty fun. Cause he was like a well, I, hero for like six months, you know? Well, well, it's like I always say, one of the more delightful guys I was around too is Pete Chilcott, who was, you know, yeah. just had a, had a limited career, but he was just had a wonderful sense of humor, you know? And, uh, and I always, uh, I've told this story before. It's like, it's in a book I wrote where, where he was, playing for Dick Mott and and, uh, and Dick had this silly drill that he did where he, he did it since he was a junior high coach where they, they put out uh, folding chairs on the and guys would have to shoot over the folding chairs you know about 20 footers they'd just take there and shoot for, I don't know, wasted a lot of time but, you know but anyway uh, one day he was in Minnesota and, and we was walking out of the building after practice and Pete was just yay yay you know all excited I said Pete what the hell's wrong with you he said I just proved that I could score on any chair in the league <laughs> <That's awesome. Yeah. laughs> kind of like yours yours will was you had the uh where you said yours was kind of like off the wall where it was like organic um when I was in high school, yeah. Rick Adelman was still the coach and there were a group of 10 of us. We called ourselves the SAC 10 and we were able to travel to Portland. I don't know how our parents did this. We were able to go by ourselves. We flew to Portland, um, went to the game there and Coz was able to, to interview us in the stands. We had stolen one of the sheets and went to a paint store and did the whole logo um, of the sheet. Nice. And we had uh, teachers from Granite Bay sitting in front of us randomly like, but on our flight home, Rick Adelman and his wife were on that flight and he went out of his way. Like we did, we didn't bug him. We didn't do like, we didn't do anything. Um, and him and his wife talked to us like for most of the flight home, like just, I mean, just so nice. Like, and we, it completed the trip for us. We were just like, it, yeah. it was organic. He was thank you guys so much for coming. We won. Do you guys want to come and hop on the plane and go to the next, you know, road trip with us, um, <laughs> for luck, but it's just that kind of stuff where it's, you're not expecting it and it, and it happens and you remember it for forever. It's that kind of stuff that you just is yeah, awesome absolutely. as a fan. Gary, let's get to you for the, uh, for the Reynolds wrap up now. Well, uh, 
probably the, the only thing this is a, a little bit uh follow up in what we've been talking about today but i guess for me you know i think without a doubt this is the most important time for this king's franchise in 25 years this summer and i i, I really uh feel for monte because you know if he gets to make all the decisions, he has got to make the right hire as coach. He has got to make the right draft choice. He has got to find a way to make a good trade and possibly all of that has to happen. It really does this year. And I, I just think it's to that point. And I am really pulling for the guy. And, and uh, as a Kings fan, I don't know if he can, if, if it's possible to do to hit home runs in all those areas, but boy, oh boy, you better have doubles, <laughs> hard doubles down the line in each area. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Well, for everyone here at the Kings Herald, I want to thank uh, Jill Adge for coming on. Jill's uh, Jill's podcast is fantastic. It is uh, it is comprehensive. It is one of those ones that if you're not listening to it, you are truly truly missing out. That's the Sports Ethos uh, Sacramento Kings podcast. Um, any anything you want to know about the Kings, Jill's got you covered. Um, I, I don't I don't show for too many podcasts. I don't even listen to that many podcasts in terms of when it comes to the Kings because I'm I get tired of talking about them with with two of the best people I know in Jerry and Tony. So I will listen to Jill's podcast religiously, and uh, and so uh, please give give that a listen if you ever get the chance. So Jill, thanks thanks again for coming on. I really appreciate all you were able to contribute today. So, so thanks so much for that. And uh, for everyone else, uh, uh, thanks, for, thanks for rolling through with us. Uh, it's the offseason now. We're going to be able to get in more questions from you guys. We're going to be able to, uh, to, to mix things up a little bit. Now the Kings have left us no choice but to get creative with, uh, with what we talk about. And uh, um, thanks again, and we'll see you guys in two weeks. From the Kings Herald Barbershop.